Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning. Glad you're here today. Uh, listen, if you're a first-time guest, thank you for being our guest. Uh, my name is Todd Connitz. I serve as the lead pastor here, and uh, it's a joy to have you, and I hope you feel uh, right at home. Uh, if you would, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Luke chapter uh, 19. We're in uh, week two of a series called Who's Your One? And uh, what we're doing over the next few weeks is we're challenging each one of you to discover uh, who your one is, the individuals in your life that God is prompting you that are far from God, uh, that he is prompting you to go and share the good news of Jesus with them so that they might have a relationship with him. And so uh, this morning, we're going to wrestle with the question of why the one? Why is it that we're challenging you and why is it that we should be compelled as Christ followers to go after the one? And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19 and jumping into a very familiar story. It's the story of Zacchaeus. How many of you have ever heard the story of Zacchaeus? Many of you have heard this. And I think it's ironic that I'm preaching on Zacchaeus on the day that uh, Vacation Bible School is kicking off. Because uh, like many of you, I learned about the story of Zacchaeus at Vacation Bible School. This week, uh, starting tonight, uh, we're, we're asking God, I think we're going to see somewhere between 800 and 1,000 kids a part of our Vacation Bible School this week. And so we're asking God to send us every kid uh, in the city so we can love on them and point them to Jesus. And we have stepped into Super Mario Brother World uh, right here. Uh, some of you feel like you're, you're a teenager again. Some of you feel like you're a kid again. Some of you have no clue what this is, and that probably means you're under the age of 30, all right? So, uh, but Super Mario, this is kind of a, a cool deal uh, because we know, right, we know who Mario's one was. It was... Princess Peach, right? That was his one, and he went to great lengths to get her. So uh, as we think about Vacation Bible School, we're probably uh, familiar with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus um, is a character that many of us have grown up hearing about, and this is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 19, start reading in verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. It says, he, talking about Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and, and climbed up in a sycamore tree for he was about to pass that way. Now, how many of you know the song uh, Zacchaeus? Anybody here? Right. So we've seen some of this. Zacchaeus was a what? A wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he he looked up in the tree and he said, you know the song. Some of y'all are angry Jesus as you even did the finger wagging there. Um, this is what we're getting in the story. So this is what happened. So, so Jesus says he's a wee little man and he's in a tree and in verse number um, five. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today, and you got to start doing the whole motion to do that, right? Verse 6, and he hurried, and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. Apparently, there were Baptist presents in this, in this place. Um, 
And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And he said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also was a son of Abraham. And verse 10 is powerful. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now we all understand like, like the, the, the importance of having the one in a room of a crowd full of people, right? Like, like we understand walking into a place where there are maybe a dozen people or maybe a hundred people or a couple of hundred people and realizing that yes, there's a crowd, but there's one that has my attention. All of us understand this. Like on my wedding day, there were a few hundred people in the room. Uh, there were friends, there was family, there were photographers, uh, there, was, there were pastors on stage. Uh, there, there, there was all kinds of people in the room, but there was one, right, that got my attention. It was the one that I was about to say I do to, hoping she would say it back to me. And she was the only one in the room that mattered. So we, we all know that. Like a couple weeks ago, I went to a graduation. My nephew graduated high school. So um, there was, a, I think, 146 students in the class. And uh, in, in all of the, the kids in cap and gowns who were about to walk and have their name called, what was fascinating to me is that it was a, the arena or the stadium was full of people, and they were there to watch the graduation. But in the midst of all the 146, for our family, there was what? There was one that we really were there to see. Um, my daughter played in a basketball tournament this weekend, and while I love every kid that's on her basketball team and cheer them on like crazy, at the truth is there's, there's one that, that I'm more interested in than the rest of them because she belongs to me. So we get it, right? We understand that in the midst of a crowd, there's one that captures our heart and attention. And listen, the same is true in the area of evangelism. When we think about the mission that God has given us, and last week Pastor Connor did a fantastic job of walking us through the Great Commission, helping us understand that the mission that God has given all of us is to take Jesus to the nations, right? It's to take Jesus to the world. That in the midst of seeing all nations, we've got to understand that, that daily or in our lives, there are going to be one or two people that he has specifically caused to cross our path to enter in our life so that the one might hear the good news of Jesus. And so we've got to understand that if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, it starts with, with one. So the question is this, why the one? Why should we as followers of Jesus, why should we as disciples of Christ be focused on the one? Why should we ask Jesus to reveal to us who's the one in our life that you want us to share the good news of the gospel with? So let me give you an answer that's very simple, all right? And here's the simple answer, because that's the way Jesus lived. That the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, if you look at his life, Jesus was constantly focused on the one is that Jesus understood that he was there to save the world, but he was also there to save the one, that individuals that God the Father would uh, cause to cross his path, that he was focused on them and he saw the one. And because we are followers of Christ, here's what that means for us. You ready for it? This is mind-blowing. If we are followers of Jesus, that means that we are to, to follow Jesus, right? I know mind-blowing, right? That we are to actually follow Jesus. So if Jesus was focused on the one, guess what? We should be focused on the one. That if Jesus exemplified this in his own life, then we should model our lives after him and focus on the ones just like Jesus. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to look at this story of Zacchaeus, a familiar story. And I want us to see, uh, really, as we unpack this, I want to see four ways that Jesus' life was focused on the one. 
And Jesus sets an example of how we are to live this way. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to do so. Uh, Write these uh, four phrases down, four lessons we learn, or four ways that Jesus lived his life focused on the one. Number one is this, Jesus, listen, Jesus sees the one. This is what we learn in the story. We see that Jesus sees the one. Look at verse 1 again. He says, and he, this is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. I love what Luke does here. Listen to what he does. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. So this story is Luke's telling it. He's saying Jesus is entering into this city called Jericho. Jericho was a very busy, large city. Uh, Jesus was traveling with a huge entourage. Uh, In a moment, Luke is going to talk about the crowds that were there around Jesus, that were pressing into Jesus. However, in the midst of the the masses, we see that this story is going to zoom in on and we're going to look at one person. This is why Luke says, as he passed through Jericho, behold, don't miss this, behold, there was a man, a single person in the midst of the masses that is going to get the attention of Jesus. There was a man, and he says his name. His name is Zacchaeus. So not only do we know that there is a man, we know that that man has a name. And then it tells a little bit about this man's life. It says that he was a chief tax collector, and he was very rich. And I say, why is that? important part of the story. This really sets the the scene of the importance of this one and the encounter that Jesus is going to have. So to be a tax collector in this particular day is a little bit different than if you were a tax collector in today's society, although I believe that there's some similarities. Like, I'm sorry if you work for the IRS in the room. We do love you. However, right? (laughs) However, um, so you, we think oftentimes about the, the, the tax collectors in the Scripture. We almost think like in our terms, but it's a lot worse than it is today. You see, in this particular day and time, if the Roman government was to go in and overthrow a city or a community, what they would do is they would automatically, I mean, that, that, that place could keep some, some of their culture and some of their regular habits of life, but what they would do is they would put heavy taxation on them. So not only have they conquered the people and they're oppressing the people, now they're robbing you know, a, a really unrealistic taxes from the people and with no really set rules or boundaries to play by. And so now they were smart. Here's what they would do. They would go in, set this heavy taxation, but they would not send Roman officials to uh, execute the taxation laws. Rather, they would find a local. They would find someone who was a native to the people. And because this person would know where all the money is. This person would know the commerce. They would know who the movers and shakers were. This person would be able to know uh, where the hidden money in the community is. And so they would find a local. And to find a local, this is what that person had to do. They had to be willing, one, to love money more than anything else. Why? Because they're about to betray their family, their friends, their heritage, their, their entire people group is about to be betrayed because they're going to join the enemy in stealing money from them. And so here's what the Roman government would do. They would say, you, you, here are the taxes that we want you to charge and collect, but then anything you can get above and beyond that, that is yours to keep. And so tax collectors would set the tax that the Romans said, and then they would tax on what they wanted to make on top of it. And so what you found is that these men were highly unethical. They were thieves. They were, they were becoming very wealthy at the expense of their very own people, listen, by the hands and under the power and authority of the enemy, Rome. They would be given Roman soldiers, and so if you didn't, uh, you didn't give your money, you had Roman soldiers who would go in and take what uh, was yours so that this man could become rich, this guy who was once a neighbor. So think about the condition of this man's heart. This, this, this says specifically here that he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. You know what that means? He was really good at what he did. 
He was really good at what he did. He was a thief and he was a good thief. He was, had, had, had very little or no integrity whatsoever. So socially speaking, this man was an outcast. This man was hated by his own people. This man was on the fringe of society. This man was one that was despised. And you can even see it in the story as, as he's trying to see Jesus. What happens? The crowd is hip-checking him, right? You ain't getting in here. This is our one moment to keep you out, and you've been taking all of our money. You're not going to see Jesus. And so you see that this man is socially an outcast on the fringe of society. But spiritually speaking, this man is about as far from God as a person could be. Why? Because to, in order to be a tax collector, you had to sell out not only your people, you had to sell out God. Like, like, like the Jewish people were the people of God. And so this man has made an alliance with the enemy. He has not only betrayed God, but God's people. And the fact that it mentions and highlights he is very rich. Now listen, if you're very rich in here, it doesn't mean you got your wealth by greed, but it does mean that for this man. This man was wealthy because he was greedy and he was a thief and he loved money more than everything else. So here's what we find. Socially, he was an outcast and a reject. And spiritually speaking, he, he was as far from God as a person could be. And yet he is the one that Jesus is going to see and lean into. Once you see what happens next in the story, verse 3. And this is Zacchaeus, and he was see, uh, seeking to see who Jesus was. So Jesus is coming, and Zacchaeus, this social and spiritual uh, outcast, is seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the count of the crowd, he could not. So he was a wee little man, and the wee little man couldn't get in, right? So the crowd is hip-checking. They're not letting him in. And they're keeping him from Jesus. So what is Zacchaeus going to do? So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now this is fascinating here. Zacchaeus wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. And maybe it's because simply he heard about the miracles of Jesus. I mean, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, no doubt word has gotten out. And he hears this about this miracle work, and he's thinking, and I, I want to see this man. Maybe Jesus is this popular figure, and, and, and Lazarus wants to be able to say, or Zacchaeus rather, wants to be able to say, I've seen him. I've laid my eyes on him. But I don't think that's what's happening in the story. In fact, the story suggests something different. The behavior of Zacchaeus is very peculiar. This was a man who was, had a prominent position in the community, even though most people didn't like him. He was prominent in the community, had a position. This is a man that was very wealthy, and, and, and here's what we find. We find his behavior weird. He's running, and he's climbing, and he's trying to fight through crowds. What, what's happening? He, this is very much adolescent behavior. In this particular day and time, you would never see a grown man, especially someone prominent in a community, running or climbing or doing any of these things. The, the story is kind of revealing to us that there's something happening in the heart of Zacchaeus that we need to lean into. And again, I'm just going to speculate just for a moment, but, but, but my, my thought is this, is that Zacchaeus understands there's something missing in his life. Like there's something missing in his life. From the, from the outside looking in, Zacchaeus has everything the world says you need to find happiness. He has position and he has power, yet in the midst of his position and power, he is empty and he is lonely. And he has heard about the ministry of Jesus, and maybe he's thinking, maybe somehow Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the thing that I've been looking forward uh, for with my life. And so as he's fighting through the crowds, they're not letting him through. I'm going to run around, and I'm going to try to lay hold of Jesus, because maybe, just maybe, Jesus will embrace me, and Jesus is what I've been missing in my life. Maybe, maybe Zacchaeus, this tax collector, heard the news about Matthew, a former tax collector who's now a disciple of Jesus. And he's thinking, if there's hope for Matthew, maybe there's hope for me too. 
So what you find is, is that there's a longing in his heart. So he, he, he climbs this tree to get a better view. And look what happens in verse 5. And listen, and when Jesus came to the place. Now, what place? To the place where Zacchaeus was. When Jesus comes to the place, he's walking, and there's an entourage with Jesus. The crowds are everywhere. Zacchaeus has been trying to push through, and so he runs around saying, I think I see where Jesus is going. And he runs around, and he climbs a tree. And when Jesus gets to that place, the place where Zacchaeus was, Jesus stops, and he looks up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, what just happened here? Jesus saw the one. Jesus saw the one. Not only does he see him, listen, I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, when he says Zacchaeus, he, say, he knows his name. When he says Zacchaeus, maybe it's because Zacchaeus' reputation is known to everybody and Jesus just happens to know his name. Maybe it's divinely imparted. The Father just divinely imparted the name of Zacchaeus. Maybe as Zacchaeus is trying to get in, Jesus kind of sees him and the people are yelling, get out of here, Zacchaeus. And so he kind of has a reference point. We don't really know how Jesus knows his name, but here's the point. Jesus knows his name. He knows his name and he looks at him. And when Jesus says Zacchaeus, this was Jesus' way of saying, Zacchaeus, I know you. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know where you've been. I know everything there is to know about you. And you have been despised by the community, but you have been seen by me. How long has it been since Zacchaeus has heard his name said with compassionate eyes and a kind voice? Jesus sees him. Jesus sees the one. And I love this. Here's what I love about this. Zacchaeus is desperate to get to a place where he could just get a glimpse of Jesus, never imagining that Jesus would be the one that would see him. Listen, we need to take some cues from Jesus here. We need to realize this morning there are people all around us who are in the same condition as Zacchaeus. They're, they're far from God. They have tasted what the world has to offer, and they keep coming up empty. And like Jesus, we need to see the one. We need to recognize the longing and the hurt and the hearts around us. We need to see people for who they are, love them where they are, and point them to the hope that is found in Jesus. But all of that starts with seeing them. You see, here's the thing. The crowd that day shunned him, but Jesus saw him. Here's a heart question for you this morning. You may want to write this down and wrestle with it. Just a simple heart question. Are you more like the crowds or are you more like Jesus? Are you, are you like the crowds, the self-righteous people who don't think that Zacchaeus should have access to Jesus? Or are you like Jesus trying to give someone else access to Jesus? This phrase here, this question, I'll elaborate on it like this. Listen, are you a self-righteous admirer of Jesus who shuns sinners? Or are you a loving follower of Jesus who sees sinners? You see, in the crowd this day, and this is, by the way, if, you, if you're here today and you feel like you've, you've been shunned because of your sin, here's what I want you to know. I want you to take some cues from Zacchaeus. Because the self-righteous admirers of Jesus, this is what self-righteous admirers of Jesus does. Do, do, here's what they do. They, they, they see themselves as better than everyone else, as being the only ones that have the right to be in relationship with God. 
And in doing so, in pursuing God in this way, as admirers rather than followers, they keep other people away. That this is what happens. And so if you're here this morning and you've been shunned because of your sin, here's what I want you to do. I love this. Zacchaeus, he didn't let the crowds deter him. He got to a vantage point where he could see beyond the self-righteous righteous admirers and lay eyes on the Savior. And this morning, maybe that's been your church experience. Maybe your church experience has been, man, th- this is just a group of self-righteous admirers of Jesus who look nothing like the one I read about. And I want to say to you, as a follower of Jesus, I'm sorry that that's been your experience, but I want to encourage you this morning, get to a point where you can look beyond the crowds and see the Savior. Get beyond the crowds and see the one who sees you. Listen, we must look and see the people around us. How many of you have ever had the book, uh, Where's Waldo? Played that game, Where's Waldo? Anybody here? Raise your hand if that's you. So... um, I love about this because you, you open it up and there's be like you know four or five Waldos in the mix of like you know hundreds of faces there and the goal is where's Waldo? We got to find Waldo. Got to find the got to find the one right. And what I've learned this is just me maybe maybe my eyes work. What I've learned is is that if I can find Waldo once, I can find him again. Like the moment your eyes get trained kind of to seeing the colors and seeing the figure, and once you can kind of scan the page and you identify one Waldo, all of a sudden it seems like Waldos show up all over the page, all over the book. Why? Because you've become conditioned to seeing him. Here's what I'm convinced of. If we could ever begin to see the world with spiritual eyes, to begin to view people like Jesus views people, here's what's going to happen. We're going to begin to see the one. And when you start seeing the one, guess what? You're going to find there's a whole lot more out there. And you're going to be spiritually conditioned to be able to go through life and recognizing through conversation and through interaction, listen, there's one there and there's another and there's another because you're sensitive because you're gaining the eyes and the mind of Jesus. Some of you this morning in the room, you, you can identify yourself with Zacchaeus. And here's what I want you to know this morning. Just like Zacchaeus, maybe you came today hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus. And here's what I want you to know today, that Jesus you, doesn't just want you to get a glimpse of him. He wants you to know that he sees you. He sees where you are, what you've done, and maybe you think you've crossed some lines and there is no hope for you, but I want you to know that what you're going to find in Jesus is a Savior that will see you where you are, love you where you are, and make himself available to you today. Which leads me to number number two. Jesus engages the one. Jesus engages the one. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And he hurried, this is Zacchaeus, he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. Now, I love this, and here's what we learn about this, that, that sinners are drawn to Jesus. And what we've got to do is we've got to be willing, when we see the lost, to see the one, that we would engage the one with the love of Jesus. Because, listen, while many sinners are turned off by the church, listen, they're not turned off by Jesus. And we need to engage the world with the love of Jesus. I love this. He sees him. He stops. Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house today. I love this because when Jesus sees him, Jesus doesn't go, wait a second. I need to go away from here and pray a little bit and ask the Father, do you really want me to talk to him? Now, you're giggling because that's what you do, right? That's what we do, right? 
We over-spiritualize, so we're, we're okay, I want to look for the one. I'm walking, all of a sudden, bam, there's the one, the open door, and we freeze up, we get nervous, we get scared. And so while we see the one, we don't engage the one, and then we spiritualize the dilemma in our heart, which is really a dilemma of disobedience. And so we say, let me go away somewhere, and let me just pray about it and see if Jesus wants me to share him with the world. Like, like Jesus, uh, they're lost, and they're on their way to hell, and they don't have hope in life. And I know that you could fix all of that in their life. I just want you to give me a sign that you might want me to share you with them. Now, how foolish does that sound? Right? And then we, then we even, like, insult. Like, we go, like, then we try to, this, all this hocus-pocus stuff, like, here's what I need, Jesus. Okay, not only do I want you to confirm in my heart, but I want you to give me a sign. Like tomorrow, if at 316, I can cross paths with that person. Why 316? Because my favorite verse is John 316. And I think, I think they got a cousin named John. And if all of those things line up, then I'll know that you want me to talk to them about you. And, and what's, what floors me about this is that to me it's an insult to God. And sometimes God's like, okay. Um, because can I just help you, believer? Listen, let me help you. Always assume the answer is yes. The prompting in your heart. Listen, I see them. They're lost. They're far. I got this prompting in my heart. The answer is yes. I heard this a long time ago. More Christians in, in regards to evangelism need, need to realize that the light is always green unless, for some reason, in that moment, God turns it red. The problem is we live on red and then go spiritualize it and pray and ask for a green light. Listen, the Great Commission has given us the green light. Jesus engages him. How does Jesus engage him? Two ways. The first is this. He engages him urgently. Urgently. Notice how he says this. Hurry, hurry, and come down, for I must go to your house when? Today. You hear the, the urgency? So Jesus is walking. Hey, hurry, hurry, get down. Now, now, get down, because I must. The word, the phrase I must is the idea of a divine impulse. Like there's something that's moving in the heart of Jesus, a, a leading of the spirit. I must go to your house today. Like I can't wait today. I got to have the conversation right now. Listen, we need to get a sense of urgency in regards to evangelism. We need to recognize the spiritual condition of the lost, that they are cut off from the creator, which means they were made for a relationship with God and they do not have one. Listen, they are in their sins, dead, the scripture says, with no hope of life whatsoever. And if they die in that condition, they'll experience the second death and forever be separated. There is a real urgency in this thing called evangelism. Eternity hangs in the balance. And God has sent us to go and tell a world in need of salvation that salvation has come and that today is the day of that salvation. We don't have to wait. There is an urgency in this. Evangelism is not a secondary issue in the life of a believer. It is a primary calling. And without a sense of urgency, we are not going to see a great harvest. One of my first jobs after high school, the summer I graduated, I was a lifeguard at a country club in my hometown. And what was interesting about this job is that I was the only, uh, they needed to hire a guy. They had several people working, they needed to hire another guy. And so I was the only lifeguard who was not certified to be a lifeguard. And this is the way we rolled in Arkansas, right? I mean, and so 
they, they, so their question was, can you swim? Yes. Do you think you could pull somebody out? Absolutely. And so they, you're hired. That's awesome. And here was one rule. Don't tell anybody you're not certified. There was one kid rescued from drowning that summer. Guess who was the rescuer? The uncertified guy. So the kid was going under, and, and some of the lifeguards panicked while they're panicking on the side. Like, what do we do? What do you mean, what do we do? We're paid to jump in and pull people out. So I jump in, and I do the deal, and I pull the kid out, and everyone is excited and happy, right? The uncertified guy is the one who got the thing done, with one exception. So everybody's, like, mamas are crying, and everybody's kind of celebrating the moment. And then one of our girls made a mistake. He's not even certified, and look how good he did. I got fired for saving a kid because I didn't meet the qualifications. And I thought, wait a second, he's the evidence that I can do this job. Like, like what more qualification do you need? A kid was drowning. I, I, he didn't drown on my watch. And so I got fired for that all because they didn't think I had the right credentials. And here's the thing. I think you should have credentials if you're going to be a lifeguard. Don't do it the way we did it in Arkansas. However... In evangelism, so many of us, we don't get engaged. We don't feel a sense of urgency in that moment. That kid is going under. I have got to. I can't think about it, talk about it, say, I don't have the training for it. What do you do in that moment? You jump in the water and you dive in and you pull him out, right? Listen, so many of you are on the sidelines of evangelism saying, I don't have the credentials. I don't know enough. I don't understand the theological issues of the scriptures. And I just think I need to learn some more before I begin to share my faith. Listen to me. If you were drowning in your sin and you've been rescued, you have everything you need to go and be a rescuer. Some of you need to stop hiding behind the credentials excuse and just get in the fight. This is urgent. The second way was relationally. Jesus was uh, engages him urgently and relationally. I love this. I must stay at your house. I must stay at your house. Why is that important? In this particular day and time, to go into someone's house and share a meal with them and to stay at their home was, is more than what we have today. Like our, our, <laughs> our qualifications to go to someone's house for dinner is what are they having, right? Like we don't care if we even like the person. If we like the meal, we'll go, Right? And no one's really going to think anything of it. But in this particular day, if you were to go and stay at someone's house and share a meal with them, it was a declaration to everyone of really two things. One, I accept them and I have an intimate relationship with them. So this was a big deal. Why did Zacchaeus come down so quickly? Why did he hurry? Again, how long has it been since someone said, I want to be in a friendship with you. I want to know you. I want to build a relationship with you. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to, I'm going to go and embrace you where you are. Jesus doesn't tell him you need to clean up. Jesus just says, let's go hang out. I want to go share a meal with you. You, you can see how polarizing this is and how radical this is based upon the crowd's response. Look at verse 7. And when they saw it, when they, when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who? the self-righteous admirers of Jesus. And by the way, every, every church has them, right? It's the people that, 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 that say that Jesus is the hope of the world, but then criticize people who actually live like Jesus is the hope of the world, which means we got to go engage the lost and open doors and, and, and maybe not do the things that we've always done the way we've always done them and do them differently so that people on the outside might get on the inside. When they saw it, they grumbled. Why? 
He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. How dare he do that? Let me tell you how and why. Because the scripture says Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And by the way, can I just tell you this real, just real quick? This is a side note. This is good stuff, though. The difference between the crowd and Zacchaeus was this. It wasn't the condition of their heart. The difference between Zacchaeus and the crowd wasn't the condition of their heart. It was their awareness of the condition of their heart. He was lost and he knew it. The crowd was lost and they had no clue. So clothed in self-righteousness. This is why Jesus says that, listen, those who are well don't need a physician. I have come for the sick. Now, what Jesus wasn't saying there were some sick and some well. He's just saying there were some who know they were sick and there were some who think they, were, they are well. Listen, we got to understand we are Zacchaeus. We are the sinners in need of a Savior. One, one of the greatest names in all the Bible that I believe Jesus has ever been given or called is this. It's Jesus, friend of sinners. Because he is a friend of sinners, that means that I can be his friend. Isn't that great? Jesus engages him in this relationship Invites him into his life. Listen, we need to build relationships with those who would be labeled as sinners and outcast. Because that is exactly where Jesus found me. I don't know about you. Jesus found me in the depths of my sin and he changed my life forever. And as Pastor Connor says, if we really want to reach the world, there needs to be less finger wagging and more hand holding. There needs to be less finger wagging and more hand holding. And when this happens, Jesus then can do the third statement. Jesus saves the one. He sees the one. He engages the one. He saves the one. Look what happens in verse 8 and 9. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. So while the crowds are judging him, Jesus is saving him. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, we don't know the conversation that happened between Jesus and Zacchaeus. But here's what we know. We know the outcome of the conversation between Zacchaeus and Jesus. We know that Zacchaeus' life was forever transformed. The gospel had penetrated his heart, and he would never be the same again. Listen, the hope of the world is not us making people religious, but rather helping people meet the Savior, because when they meet the Savior, he saves them and transforms their heart. And this is what happens in the life of Zacchaeus. It says immediately, a couple of things happen. You, You see the expression of Zacchaeus, both faith and repentance. What do you mean? He declares Jesus as Lord. He acknowledges who Jesus is. And then you see repentance. What is he doing? He's walking away from his former life. The things that I've stolen, I'm going to give back fourfold. And and I'm going to um, give now to the poor. So rather than becoming more greedy, he becomes more generous. Rather than stealing, now he pays back. What do you find? You find an abandonment of the old life and starting a new life. You see, salvation did not come into the heart of Zacchaeus because he was generous. He was generous because salvation had entered into his heart. You see, what this world needs, the gospel has come, listen, not to just clean us up, but rather to change our life. The the, the gospel has come so that we uh, might know that there is a Savior who would find us in the sin and transform who we are. Listen, Jesus did not merely come to love us in our sin. He came to deliver us from our sin, which is why our primary message to the world must be Jesus and him crucified. We must share Jesus with the world so that Jesus can save the world, right? 
Jesus does the saving. Everybody say amen to that. I don't save anybody. You don't save anybody. But what we do is we share that salvation has come in Jesus, which is why Jesus says what he says to him. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Why did salvation, how did salvation come to the house? Because Jesus came to the house. And when Jesus comes to the house, salvation comes to the house because Jesus is our salvation. So when we begin to discover and we see our one and we engage our one, when we begin conversations with them, what we want to do is we want to invite them to Jesus. We want to express to them what Christ has done. The aim is not to get someone to church, but rather for them to meet Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus comes in, so does salvation. This is a game changer. When we realize this truth, listen, evangelism is not evangelism. Listen to me say this. Evangelism is not evangelism unless we share the gospel. Evangelism is is simply a person who has been saved by Jesus telling another person how they too can be saved by Jesus. And if there is not a communication of what Christ has done on the cross and in his resurrection, listen, we can hand out free stuff. We can invite people to events. We can be as nice to the world as we possibly can be. But if we don't bring the gospel to them, listen, we have not evangelized them. Because Jesus saves the one. Which leads me to statement number four. Jesus pursues the one. Jesus sees the one, Jesus engages the one, Jesus saves the one, because Jesus' entire life is about pursuing the one. Look what he says in verse 10. For, you want to circle that word, underline it, highlight it in your Bible. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why would you circle for or underline it? You can write in your margin this word beside it. Because. Because. That's what he's saying here. Jesus sees, Jesus engages, Jesus saves. Why does he do this? Because, because he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus summarizes the entire reason he came in one phrase and one statement. I'm not talking about he came to Jericho. Jesus summarizes his entire mission. Why did he come to planet earth? Why did he put on flesh and dwell among us to go to a Roman, to go to Jerusalem and die on a Roman cross and and be placed in a tomb and resurrect on the third day? Why did he do this? Jesus tells us he came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. So that those who are far from God, cut off from God because of our sin, dead in our trespasses, might be forgiven and restored. And we might go from lost to found. We might go from death to life. This is why Jesus came. He came to pursue the one. And I love this. I love this is what's emphasized by Luke in the story, by the way. The very first verse stands out to me maybe more than any other verse in the, in the Scripture, in the passage of the story. Here's why. It says, and he was passing through Jericho. And he was passing through Jericho. Why is that significant? For two primary reasons for me. Number one is where he's going when he, gets, when he leaves Jericho. He's passing through. Well, where is he going? Well, if you read the Scriptures, he's going to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going there for his last trip where he is going to be betrayed, he is going to be beaten, he is going to be crucified, he's going to be put in a tomb, and three days later he's going to resurrect. He's passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem where he would die for the sins of the world. The second reason I think it's important is that Jericho wasn't the destination. It was just one of the stops on the way to the destination. 
So why is that, why is that significant? It's because if you look at the ministry of Jesus, here's what you're going to discover. Most of the, the most significant encounters that Jesus had with individuals throughout his ministry happened while he was on his way to do something else. And here's what Jesus is simply saying to us with his life. It's in the middle of the mundane, routine, everyday things that we do where the most impactful moments of our life can happen. Could it be that on your way to church, there's a conversation at Starbucks? You were passing through there on your way to somewhere else to do something else, and all of a sudden, there they are. He was passing through. It wasn't his destination. But listen, listen, the most significant moments of the gospel happens on our way to something else. I wrote this down in my notes. It may be helpful to you. The most powerful gospel moments are unscheduled on our agenda, but divinely appointed on God's agenda. This is where we have got to understand as we go through our day, we need to be pursuing the one, constantly watching for the one that God may have cross our path so that when the one crosses our path, we might engage them with the gospel. And I love this. This is just a little side note here. Jesus, on his way there to Jerusalem, on his way there, this is what he's saying. On my way there, I'm passing through here because there is one who is here and he is the reason I'm going there. On my way to Jerusalem, on my way there, I'm passing through here because there's a man that's here and he's the reason I'm going there. Jesus stops here to say, this is why I'm going to the cross. This is why I'm going to die. This is why I'm going to suffer because I'm pursuing men and women like Zacchaeus who are broken and lost, who are longing, who are separated from the Father, and he is the reason I have come. I am pursuing him. And listen, every single one of us in this room, if you are saved, Jesus went there because he was in pursuit of you. And listen, we don't have to look very far if we're going to pursue the lost. Did you know that there are 19.5 million lost people in the state of Texas alone? 19.5. Think about that number. That's, that's about 63, 64% of our state that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus. Do you know that 19.5 million people, just all the lost people in Texas, if you were to take the, the 19.5 million people and form a state with just the lost people, that state would be the fourth largest in our nation. We don't have to look very far if we're pursuing the lost. They're in our neighborhoods. They're on our ball teams. They're in our classrooms. They're in our workplace. They're in our families. They're in this room. They're in your life groups. They're everywhere. But we must pursue them so that when we pursue them, guess what? We can see them. And when we see them, we're able to engage with them. And when we engage with them with the message of Jesus, guess what? Jesus gets to save them. I'm telling you why I'm passionate about the one. I'll just tell you a quick story of why I'm passionate about the one. A story I heard a few years ago about a young lady who was moving from one state to another. It was her junior year in high school, kind of 
had her life mapped out on where she was going to do and had all of her friends. Life was good and safe, and she thought all together, even though she was far from Jesus. Dad got transferred to another state her junior year, and it just it ripped her life apart. All her friends, everything she had ever known, new school, I mean, no family around. I mean, just turned her world upside down. And, and immediately she just turned very bitter and angry and miserable in a very, very dark, dark place she gets to this new community, and she's hating life, hating her parents, not speaking to her mom and dad for months. And just at the rock bottom of, of life with really no hope in sight and, and, and not having a relationship with Jesus whatsoever. Wouldn't know the gospel if you explained it to her. I mean, she just was far from Jesus. She goes to a school, and at the school, there was a teacher there who loved Jesus. And through a conversation he discovered that, man, she was the one. He saw her. He says, I'm going to engage. And began to pursue a relationship where he would just spend time just talking to about life and talking about the hope of Jesus and explain to her specifically the gospel of Jesus. She had been in church most of her life but never once heard the gospel. And he just walked her through, and she, in that relationship, because he pursued her as the one, she came to a place where she recognized that the hope of her life had to be in Jesus. And in an instant, everything changed. The bitterness that she had been living in was gone. New perspective in her life. I'm talking about a radical salvation. Went from death to life. But not only that, like he said, that's my one. I'm going to pour into her. She gives her life to Christ. Her life changes. It's made such a difference in her family. Her dad comes to faith in Christ. Her brother comes to faith in Christ. Her sister comes to faith in Christ. Her mother who knew Jesus has now come back to Christ. Now she is a mother and a wife who has led her children to Christ. Here's a picture of her. It's my wife. I am so thankful that Joey Dotson was the one who saw the one. And was willing to engage a lonely, scared, bitter little girl. And say, I'm going to, I see you and I'm going to engage. I'm going to share with you the hope that's found in Jesus. Countless people have been brought from death to life because Joey pursued the one. You see, we don't know where the one is is going to go, who they're going to be, and what God's going to do in their life. But he has laid the burden on us. And I am so thankful that she was somebody's one. The question for you this morning is, who is your one? My family will never be the same again because somewhere along the way, my wife was somebody's one. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. We're going to worship in response just for a brief moment. Here's the question I want you to really drive into your own heart with this morning. This one question, there's going to be two of them. The first is this. If you're a believer in this room, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, who is your one? And and are you willing to see them where they are? Engage them? 
pursue a relationship with them, constantly looking for ways that God's going to open doors for you to share with them so that Jesus might save them. Who is your one? And have you identified them? And are you in pursuit of them? This morning as we respond, if you have not identified your one, then I'm going to encourage you to be thinking through and praying through, maybe writing in your Bible for now. The one that God is placing on your heart. Maybe you've identified the one and we just want to spend a few moments in prayer asking Jesus to do a miracle in their heart, recognizing that he is the one that saves. So we're just asking that the soil be cultivated, that the spirit be moving, and that you would be obedient. So I want us to pray. I want you, this is a sense of urgency in the room, going before the Father saying, you've given me a one and I want to chase after them like you chased after me. Others of you in the room, you are the one. You are the one. You are far from Jesus. You are like Zacchaeus. And this morning, maybe there's something in you that just said, I just hope I can get a glimpse of Jesus and maybe he's what I'm looking for. And here's what I want you to know this morning is that it's not really about you getting a glimpse of Jesus. It's about recognizing that he sees you. And for some of you, he's calling your name and saying salvation can come to your house too. And by faith, you would respond, you would repent, you would joyfully embrace the invitation that Jesus is offering you today and confess him as Lord, repenting of your sin and giving your heart to him. As we worship in a moment, we're going to have decision encouragers up here at the front, men and women who would love to pray for you, whether it's praying for you in regards to your one or maybe you are the one and you need to talk to someone about being saved today. But church family, I want us to get serious about this thing that God has called us to. Father, I love you and I thank you that you are a God who calls, who sets us apart, who says to us, I have come to pursue you and save you and now I'm sending you so that through you I can pursue others and save them. So God, in the name of Jesus, I pray every believer in the room that has that was once lost but now has been found, that was dead and now is alive. I pray that you would stir in our hearts a burden for the lost. If you've given us our one, help us be faithful and let us be urgent in our prayer and pursuit. If you've not given us our one, I pray that we would hear from you today. And for those of you who are the one, give them boldness to surrender to you today, recognizing that you see them, you are calling them by name, and you are inviting yourself into their life. Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, let's stand and let's sing and let's.